0: Hello, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz returning to you to do some more of the Internal Medicine Essentials Rheumatology session, and this is going to be questions 21 through 25. Unfortunately, I um day number roughly 20 of my Bell's palsy, and so my articulation is not what it could or used to be, and hopefully this will get better soon, Uh, And as you know, I reviewed a Bell's palsy question in one of our last question sets. So hopefully you have that uh, diagnosis and treatment down pat. This is question number 21. A 29-year-old woman is evaluated during a routine examination. She seeks advice about reducing her risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis because her mother was recently diagnosed with this disorder. The patient is asymptomatic. She has a 10-pack year history of smoking and consumes six alcoholic beverages per week, usually on weekends. She is sedentary and overweight. Her only medication is an oral contraceptive. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Body mass index is 29. There is no synovitis or bony abnormalities. The remainder of the examination is normal. Which of the following lifestyle modifications is most likely to reduce this patient's risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis? A, alcohol cessation. B, discontinuation of oral contraceptives. C, increased physical activity. D, smoking cessation. Or E, weight loss. And I'll repeat those answers again. That's A, alcohol cessation. B, discontinuation of oral contraceptives. C, increased physical activity. D, smoking cessation, or E, weight loss. So contemplate your answer for a moment, and uh, we will go over the answer to that question. And the answer is D, which is smoking cessation. So uh, I don't know if you'd really be asked this question on the shelf exam. Uh, It's a little bit, in a way, esoteric, but it's really interesting, I think. So smoking is associated with an increased risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis and cessation would therefore be recommended as the number one priority in this patient. I think in some ways this is a little bit of a common sense question because if you think of anything you can get a patient to do that's going to alter their future health, it's getting them to quit smoking tobacco because of all the associated diseases that come with it from COPD to cancer to things like rheumatoid arthritis if there's a family history. So along those lines, hereditary factors convey susceptibility for developing rheumatoid arthritis and changes in environmental factors seem uh, to modify this risk somewhat. So users of smokeless tobacco, interestingly enough, do not have an increased risk of developing this disorder, which suggests that it's not simply an effect of the nicotine on the disease pattern. So really, you'd want to get her to quit smoking. As far as alcohol use goes, she is overusing a bit there, but it's not associated with an increased risk of rheumatoid arthritis. So you'd probably advise her to decrease her amount of alcohol consumption uh, to help her avoid any future diseases associated with her uh, slightly excessive alcohol use. Hormonal factors are really interesting, and they may play a role in developing rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, The risk is higher for rheumatoid arthritis in women, uh, but it is not as high as in, uh, in women who have had children. So having children seems to be protective in women at risk for rheumatoid arthritis. Breastfeeding is associated with a decreased risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis and may account for some or all the protective effect of the fact that women who've had children have less rheumatoid arthritis. And use of oral contraceptives may also be protective. In one study, use of oral contraceptives for seven or more years was associated with a decreased risk of rheumatoid arthritis. I think this is sort of one of those uh, probably things, but not 100% clear that that's the case. And finally, as far as advising her about obesity and sedentary lifestyle, uh, these are associated with a number of health risks, but are not clearly linked to the development of rheumatoid arthritis. So that would have been an incorrect answer. Question 22, a 52-year-old man is evaluated for an eight-week history of bilateral hand pain. He also has two hours of morning stiffness of the hands that improves with activity. The patient has no pertinent personal or family medical history. He takes no medications. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Synovitis is noted at the metacarpophalangeal joints of the second through fifth digits bilaterally with swelling, tenderness, and pain on range of motion. Again, we're at the metacarpophalangeal joints of the second through fifth digits on both hands, and we're finding tenderness and uh, some altered range of motion. Laboratory studies are significant for mild, enormous chromic, normocytic anemia, and erythrocyte sedimentation rate of 100 millimeters per hour. Rheumatoid factor is negative, and liver chemistry tests are normal. Radiographs of the hands are normal. Which of the following antibody tests would be most helpful in establishing this patient's diagnosis? A, anticyclic citrullinated peptide antibodies, that's CCP for short. B, antimitochondrial antibodies. C, Anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies, or ANCA for short. Or D, Anti-nuclear antibodies, i.e. ANA antibodies. Again, that's A, CCP, B, anti-mitochondrial antibodies, C, ANCA, D, ANA. And I'll give you a second to contemplate the answer to this interesting question. So the answer uh, in this one, the goal here, this is a diagnosis question. Again, the answer is A. Uh, you would order uh, anti-CCP antibodies. Uh, Anti-CCP antibodies are present in about 40 to 60 percent of patients with early rheumatoid arthritis, including some patients with a negative rheumatoid ar- factor, or so-called uh, rheumatoid-negative rheumatoid arthritis. These antibodies are 95 percent specific for rheumatoid arthritis, so highly specific test. And you should know that the presence of high titers of either rheumatoid factor or anti-CCP antibodies or the presence of both increases the likelihood of disease. Uh, So although this patient's rheumatoid factor is negative, rheumatoid arthritis remains a significant concern because as noted in the question, he has a synovitis of eight small joints and he has morning stiffness lasting more than one hour. There we go again. This is about the 10th time that's come up during these questions. So morning stiffness greater than one hour and more consistent with rheumatoid arthritis or other inflammatory arthritis. and These are common symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, additionally, he has evidence of uh, systemic inflammation because he has an elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and he has this uh, mild norm- normochromic normocytic anemia, which goes with a uh, serious disease as well. So what about anti-mitochondrial antibodies? These are present in patients with autoimmune hepatitis, and you'll note that they gave you the uh, liver function tests as being normal, or the liver tests as being normal. Um, so patients with this disease usually uh, can develop arthralgia and arthritis, similar to the findings in this patient. But since he doesn't have the liver chemistry abnormalities, um, then this is not something that's going towards the autoimmune hepatitis. And so you would not order antimitochondrial antibodies. So remember at this juncture, anti mitochondrial antibodies, autoimmune hepatitis. That's your um neurocalisthenics for the day. Regarding the antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies, these tend to be associated with a vasculitis, <coughs> excuse me, such as granulomatosis with polyangiitis, which we used to call Wegener's granulomatosis, but we no longer do so for reasons I will not get into in this podcast. Uh, microscopic polyangiitis, Church-Strauss syndrome, antiglomerular basement membrane antibody disease, and drug-induced vasculitis. Those are all things where you would order antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies if you were thinking those might be in the differential diagnosis. Uh, Arthritis and arthralgia can be associated with these syndromes. Um, These are vascular inflammatory disorders, um, but there's no other signs or symptoms to indicate that he has uh, granulomatosis with polyangiitis or these other diseases. So you would not order an ANCA. As far as and ANA goes, uh, this is uh, clinically useful um, in things where you're suspecting systemic lupus erythematosus. Um, patients with SLE may present with arthritis, but SLE is less likely than rheumatoid arthritis in the patient described here. Um, for one thing, SLE typically occurs in women, although men can have lupus too. It's just that it's in, usually in younger women of childbearing age, so you don't have that demographic in this question. Um, and it's usually associated with other clinical and laboratory abnormalities. Uh, you can go back and look up your criteria for lupus. They might even come up in a future question in this book. Uh, so ANA are present in some patients with rheumatoid arthritis, but it's not specific for this disorder. So this would not be the test you'd order in this situation. So remember, if the, uh, you're highly suspicious of rheumatoid arthritis and the rheumatoid factor comes back negative, Anticyclic citrullinated peptide antibodies are a highly specific marker for rheumatoid arthritis. And again, remember that 40 to 60 percent of patients with early rheumatoid arthritis will be anti CCP positive. Okay. Question number 23. A 33-year-old woman is evaluated during a follow-up examination. Rheumatoid arthritis was diagnosed three months ago and methotrexate was begun at that time. The patient also takes ibuprofen and acetaminophen. Despite this treatment, she still has two to three hours of morning stiffness daily and wakes frequently during the night with pain and stiffness. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. The neck and shoulders are stiff, but have full range of motion. The wrists and metacarpophalangeal and metatarsophalangeal joints are tender bilaterally, and there is synovitis of the wrists. The left knee has a small effusion. Laboratory studies show a hemoglobin level of 12.2 grams per deciliter, platelet count of 460,000 per microliter, and erythrocyte sedimentation rate of 45 millimeters per hour. Radiographs of the hands show periarticular osteopenia and erosion of the right ulnar styloid. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in this patient's treatment? A, Add etanercept. B, add hydroxychloroquine, C, add cyclophosphamide, or D, discontinue methotrexate and begin sulfosalazine. Again, those choices, A, add etanercept, B, add hydroxychloroquine, C, add cyclophosphamide, or D, discontinue methotrexate, begin sulfasalazine. So, This is um, a question where you kind of need to know the drugs that are listed in this question. You also need to recognize, as I hope that you did, that this patient's condition is still uh, quite active in terms of her rheumatoid arthritis. She has early aggressive rheumatoid arthritis, and the addition of etanercept is indicated here. She's been on the methotrexate a reasonable amount of time, and methotrexate was was the most reasonable choice to put her on initially. It's safest, uh, and it's the most commonly used, and it's uh, quite uh, active and effective as a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, so-called DMARD. It has the greatest potential for modifying the disease compared with hydroxychloroquine uh, or sulfasalazine, and it's central to most treatments for rheumatoid arthritis. So despite the treatment with the methotrexate, the patient has persistent morning stiffness. Uh, She has numerous tender and swollen joints. She's got the swelling in her knee. She's got uh, active destruction in her hands going on, and she has an elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate. So what you really want to do here is escalate therapy. Um, So uh, use of this, this is so-called tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitor or TNF alpha inhibitor uh, and that would be indicated in the situation. And you would add it on to the methotrexate and continue the meso- methotrexate as it will be more effective in controlling joint damage and improving her function compared with a single-agent therapy with either medication alone. So the answer here really is to leave on the methotrexate and add etanercept. Now, key things to know, just as sort of an aside, is when you start a TNF-alpha inhibitor, there's important... Uh, diseases that can occur because the patient becomes effectively immunocompromised on this drug. Uh, And one of those is tuberculosis. And I've actually seen this several times in patients on TNF alpha inhibitors. So what you want to do is before starting that therapy, you would screen her for tuberculosis. Um, And I won't get into the best way to do that, but consider doing a skin PPD um, or you could do serum uh, markers uh, as well. Um, But in any case, uh, if uh, she came back positive, you would treat her with isoniazid before beginning therapy. The other diseases you may see in patients with TNF-alpha inhibitors is uh, histoplasmosis. I've seen that twice, uh, or disseminated coccidiomycosis, which I've seen a couple of times as well. So these things all can occur um, in patients on TNF-alpha inhibitors. Uh, there's not really anything you could do to prevent the histo or the cocci other than being aware that um, if you're in those territories, i.e. Central Valley or uh, the southwest for coccidiomycosis, you want to be aware that a patient on TNF alpha inhibitor could come in on it. Uh, or if you're in the Midwest, the Ohio River Valley and so forth, you'd be worried about histoplasmosis. So what about hydroxychloroquine as a choice in this question? Well, it's an effective agent in the treatment, as we talked about in an earlier question, of early mild and non-erosive rheumatoid arthritis. She has erosive rheumatoid arthritis, and this is not mild. She has pretty significant disease. So hydroxychloroquine uh, would not be beneficial in a patient with aggressive disease of this level. Uh, As far as cyclophosphamide goes as a choice, you may have picked that. Um, That's not indicated for the treatment of active rheumatoid arthritis, except in patients with so-called rheumatoid vasculitis, um, in whom major organ function is compromised. So cyclophosphamide is a big gun uh, in this situation. This patient does not have manifestations consistent with rheumatoid vasculitis, such as cutaneous ulcers, and this thing called mononeuritis multiplex, where you get a a single nerve dropout um, because of the vasculitis, for example, a foot drop, a wrist drop, or or such. Finally, sulfasalazine is often administered in combination methotrexate and or hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of early rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, Single-agent therapy with sulfosalazine also may be used when there are contraindications to the use of methotrexate. But uh, sulfosalazine would not be the ideal choice in this question because it's less effective than methotrexate in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and is not likely to benefit this patient if substituted for methotrexate. So the key point in this question is that when adequate control of rheumatoid arthritis is not achieved with one or more oral disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, so-called DMARDs, the addition of biologic therapy with a tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitor is usually indicated. Question 24 A 52 year old woman is evaluated for a three month history of fatigue, a photosensitive rash on her face, and hand pain accompanied by morning stiffness. She has no other pertinent personal or family medical history and takes no medications. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. There's a 5-millimeter shallow ulcer on the hard palate. There's an erythematous rash a crash across the cheeks and bridge of the nose. Tenderness of the metacarpophalangeal and proximal interphalangeal joints is noted. There is no swelling. The remainder of the examination is normal. Initial laboratory studies, including complete blood count, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and urinalysis, are normal. Antinuclear antibody assay results are positive with a titer of 1 to 160. Which of the following tests is most specific for confirming this patient's diagnosis? A. Anti double stranded DNA antibodies. B anti-Rho-SSA and anti-LA-SSB antibodies, C, anti-U1 ribonucleoprotein antibodies, or D, antiproteinase-3 antibodies. Again, choices are A, anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies, B, anti-Rho-SSA and anti-LA-SSB antibodies, C, anti-U1 ribonucleoprotein, otherwise known as RNP, by the way, antibodies, that's anti-RNP antibodies, or D-antiproteinase 3 antibodies. So I'll give you a moment to contemplate that so you can best utilize your neurons. So the answer here is uh, answer A, which is uh, anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies would be indicated. These have the greatest specificity for confirming a diagnosis in this patient who has manifestations of lupus. She meets the criteria for SLE because count them. She has one, positive antinuclear antibodies, along with arthritis, that's two, an oral ulcer, that's three and photosensitive rash, that's four. So she's got four, at least four out of the 11 criteria for SLE. Um, so you'd want to confirm the diagnosis because that's what you'd be suspecting when you saw her. So patients with a high pretest probability of SLE and a positive ANA acid that's usually greater than or equal to 1 to 160 should undergo confirmatory testing using a more specific autoantibody study with either an anti-double-stranded DNA antibody assay or an anti-Smith antibody assay. And we'll talk about anti-Smith in a moment. But the key thing to sort of know here is you shouldn't just shotgun your whole workup. You should be getting the ANA first. If that's positive, you move on to something that's more specific. I often see people ordering this whole panel of these uh, autoimmune labs, and it's really a stepwise approach to making the diagnosis. Uh, This is not a medical emergency, basically. So uh, anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies are present in approximately 50 to 70% of patients with SLE and are generally not found in those with other autoimmune diseases. So think of that anti-double-stranded DNA as being a really nice test for confirming a positive ANA. Uh, The presence of anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies is correlated with kidney disease in patients with SLE, and rising titers may precede disease flare. So another thing you'd be doing in this patient would be checking a urine dipstick to look for protein and so forth. And the anti-Smith antibodies are interesting. They're present in approximately 30% of patients with SLE and are highly specific for the disease. So patients with a new diagnosis of SLE should also undergo screening for anti-cardiolipin antibodies and lupus anticoagulant as well, because you'd want to know about those being positive yeah, if she's at risk for clotting and so forth. So regarding the anti ro SSA and anti-LA SSB antibodies, uh, those are present in 10 to 60% of patients with SLE. But those antibodies are much less specific than the anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies because they can also be present in patients with um, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic sclerosis, and Sjogren syndrome. And I sort of think of them as being the test order in Sjogren syndrome um, and not in uh, lupus. Uh, regarding the uh, anti-U1 ribonucleoprotein or RNP antibodies, those go with patients with mixed connective tissue disease, which is characterized by features that overlap between systemic sclerosis, polymyositis, and SLE. Uh, and the diagnosis of this uh, mixed connective tissue disorder uh, requires the presence of high, tighter RNP antibodies, generally in the absence of other auto-antib- auto-antib- antibodies. Um, and then RNP P antibodies are also found in 30 to 40 percent of patients with SLE, but the test is less sensitive and specific than anti double stranded antibody testing. So, what they're saying over and over in here in this um, explanation of this question is that anti double stranded DNA is so much more the test of choice than any of these other things that you wouldn't do unless, you know, anti double stranded DNA and Smith were negative. So, uh, the Presence of antiproteinase 3 antibodies, um, which produces a C-ANCA pattern on immunofluorescence testing, is suggestive of granulomatosis polyangiitis, which you'll recall is a necrotizing vasculitis that typically affects the respiratory tract and kidneys. Uh, And this test would not be indicated because they haven't given you anything in this question uh, to suggest that this patient has granulomatosis polyangiitis, aka Wegener's granulomatosis. So the key point here is that anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies are present in approximately 50 to 70% of patients with systemic lupus erythematosus and are very specific for this disease. Finally, we come to question number 25. So this will be the last question in this grouping of questions. A 25-year-old woman is evaluated during a follow-up examination. The patient was first seen three months ago because of fatigue, a malar rash, or malar rash and arthralgia. After laboratory confirmation of systemic lupus erythematosus, she was treated with hydroxychloroquine in a one-month course of low-dose prednisone. She reports some improvement, although fatigue and joint pain continue. On physical examination, temperature is 36.4 degrees centigrade. Blood pressure is 148 over 95 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 84 per minute, and respiratory rate is 18 per minute. The facial rash has resolved, the joint examination is normal, and there is trace bipedal edema. The remainder of the examination is unremarkable. Laboratory studies are significant for a serum creatinine level of 1.0 milligrams per deciliter and a urinalysis showing 2 plus protein, 3 plus blood, 5 to 10 leukocytes per high-power field, 15 to 20 erythrocytes per high-power field, and 1 erythrocyte cast per high-power field. Serum complement levels, C3 and C4, are decreased. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in this patient's treatment? A, high-dose prednisone, B, ibuprofen, C, lisinopril, or D, low-dose prednisone. Again, those choices are A, high-dose prednisone, B, ibuprofen, C, lisinopril, or D, low-dose prednisone? will give you a second to contemplate your answer to that question. So the answer here is A, uh, you would put her on high-dose prednisone. This patient should be treated with high-dose glucocorticoid therapy, Um, because, you know, her hypertension, ankle edema, hematuria, proteinuria, and erythrocyte casts on urinalysis are all super highly suggestive of lupus nephritis. Uh, She doesn't have uh, signs of kidney damage and elevated creatinine, but certainly all of these things can precede frank reflection in the elevated creatinine. So to prevent irreversible kidney damage, uh, early treatment with high-dose glucocorticoids is indicated For patients whose condition raises a suspicion for lupus nephritis. Um, You may be wondering, well, wouldn't you do a kidney biopsy first? Um, I think a lot of people would go uh, either way on this. Um, The fact that she has pretty clearly has systemic lupus erythematosus, and she has a classic finding suggestive of lupus nephritis, Um, a lot of people would say that getting a biopsy confirming this would not change your management, and you are, in fact, still going to put her on high-dose glucocorticoids. So I subject her to the risk of a biopsy? If it was me, I would not want the biopsy. But then again, there might be people who would be concerned about being on high-dose, um, you know, moderate-range treatment with glucocorticoids, and they might want to have the kidney biopsy. And some nephrologists would push strongly for it. Others would be more conservative and suggest treating with high-dose steroids and rechecking the urine to see if it's less active, as well as the complement levels, which were low in this case. Um, ibuprofen might help the patient with her arthralgia. In this, uh, you'll note that one of the answers was ibuprofen. But uh, non can significantly worsen kidney function in patients with lupus nephritis. So these, these would actually be, frankly, contraindicated in this particular patient. As far as initiation of antihypertensive therapy such as lisinopril it's not a bad choice except it's not really treating the underlying problem which is what they're looking for you to do in this situation angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors like lisinopril are the antihypertensive drugs of choice in patients with lupus nephritis because these agents help to control the proteinuria but in this situation you treat her with a high dose steroids and you'd see if you could get her kidney disease under control, which might also control her hypertension uh, as the kidney disease improves on the immunosuppressive therapy. As far as low-dose prednisone goes, now it might help alleviate the patient's arthralgias and the rash that's already resolved, as it has, um, but it wouldn't do anything much for her lupus nephritis. So the key point in this question is that early treatment with high-dose glucocorticoids is indicated for patients with SLE and findings strongly suspicious for lupus nephritis. Thanks a lot for listening to this section of Internal Medicine Essentials. I'll be back soon with questions 26 through 30 as we wend our way through the rheumatology section of Internal Medicine Essentials. Have a good day.